0: This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly.
1: How the FAA Flight Inspection Group ensures our safety. Coming up next in this episode... But before we get started with the Stuck Mike Avcast, let's uh, first of all make a big shout out to our sponsor.
0: Let's do the pre-flight.
1: A lot of folks come here and listen to this to find out how to get one of those free scholarships guides. So we'll let you know right away. uh, It's through our sponsor, Tailwind Waymakers. Tailwind Waymakers is a nonprofit founded to help fund aviation dreams. So whether you could use some help funding your aviation training or if you want to win a new airplane, check out tailwindwaymakers.org. And use the coupon code tailwind waymakers and get a free scholarships guide while supplies last to get that scholarships guide just go to slash scholarships also another way to get some of those free scholarships guide is through our patreon account and uh and to get those it's slash free and if you want to help out and maybe possibly help donate a scholarships guide uh for just one dollar a month through our patreon account uh you can donate us one scholarship guide per year, at least one per year, because it's uh, for every ten dollars we give away, a scholarships guides. So it's really a cool thing to do for people.
0: Now entering cruise flight.
1: Well, today we're again talking about how the FAA Flight Inspection Group ensures our safety, and we are actually going to interview. A actual flight check pilot, who you probably know, and uh, that's Russ Rosleski. And Russ, it is awesome to have you on the show again. But wait, you're a (laughs) co-host. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's it's
2: great, Carl. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I've loved being a a co-host for many years now. And of course, uh, we talked. Uh, last year sometime on your other podcast on ABS and careers uh, episode 348 kind of about the application process to be a flight check pilot and the hiring and the interview and just all that kind of stuff but uh, we thought it would be fun today to talk about what what i do on a
1: day-to-day basis Absolutely. You know, and we're looking at this more kind of like from a a general aviation perspective also. Uh, And I think this is like so cool to find out, you know, what you do. And I always get questions, you know, what does a flight check pilot do? So uh, first of all, uh, we need to first talk about what flight inspection is. And I guess we're going to have to reveal your employer if we do that.
2: Oh, man, I don't know. It's pretty pretty secretive. I'm sure no one <laughs> could probably guess it. But, uh, yes, I do work for a large governmental aviation organization <laughs> as an av- uh, airspace system inspection pilot, which is commonly called flight check, as you mentioned. Uh, my opinions and experiences are my own and do not reflect the policies or opinions of my employer or the U.S. government in any way. I am here on off-duty time and not in any kind of official capacity and do not represent my employer. Now, with that out of the way, yeah, what is flight inspection? Well, basically... All these, all the navigation systems and sources and routes and everything that we fly, mostly talking about IFR flight here, but really some of this plays into VFR as well. But all this kind of stuff is radiated a signal or is being certified to a certain standard or the airways are in certain locations and such. And how do we know that they're good? You're flying around in the clouds and how do you know that the guidance you're receiving is good. How do you know that the obstacles have been properly evaluated or even the runway lights or the radar system or interference from surrounding, you know, radio stations or something like that? How when you're flying in the clouds, you need to be pretty confident that everything's working properly, everything's working as it should. And the way that this is accomplished is through this flight inspection mission which consists of uh, numerous airplanes and pilots and several different local uh, regional offices. And we fly this stuff and we certify these systems, ILSs, VORs, PAPIs, VASIs, Runway Lights, all that kind of stuff so that when you're flying it, you don't have to worry about any of this kind of stuff. You can just have faith that it's working and is going to guide you to the runway safely. So somebody needs to do the certification and, a, and periodic review of these systems and that's what
1: we do. You said, I, you know, I think I was under the impression that primarily was all IFR. I, I like what you just said, that it's also, there's a certain VFR aspect to it. Maybe later, or maybe you can give us an example of, of what that would be.
2: Yeah, we'll get into that later. I have this one thing that we do is actually a lot of fun that I'll talk about later, and it pertains a lot to VFR.
1: Awesome, and so one of the things that I wanna stress here is, uh, you, and I've heard this comment uh, before, and that's the reason I'm, I'm bringing up this, is that it's here, this is for everybody, for all uses of the airspace. So focusing on how does it benefit us as GA pilots? Because sometimes people say, well, it's that's great for the airlines, but it doesn't help us as much. I, I think that's that, that's a bit of a misconception from a couple people i have written to me.
2: Uh, yeah, certainly anybody who flies IFR, or VFR, which we'll talk about in a little bit, anybody who flies IFR is benefiting from what we do. Uh, if you're flying that that ILS approach down to 200 feet above the ground, which general aviation does, airlines do it, you know, I've, I've done it in light airplanes. Not often, but, you know, sometimes it happens, right? You're flying that approach down to 200 feet above the ground, and you can't see anything, you really want to be pretty convinced that when you pop out of clouds, the runway is going to be right in front of you, for one, and there's not going to be any obstacles in your way, definitely for number two. So, uh, anybody who's flying instruments uh, is relying on these systems to work properly, and that's what we're responsible for checking out.
1: Oh, that's interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, you know small planes, large planes. Uh, when you're doing these flight checks, um, what uh, what airplanes are? Are they 172s? I'm assuming they're not. They got to be something bigger than that. Well,
2: <laughs> predom- no, they're not 172s. Uh, predominantly, we fly uh, the King Air 300. Which is the model that uh, that I fly? Uh, we also have uh, some Challenger jets, some 601s, 604s, and 605s. Um, the King Airs are used, obviously, primarily for domestic use around the uh, the continental U.S. Uh, the Challenger airplanes are used for a lot of our. They do some domestic work, but they are also used for a lot of overseas work. Um, you know, obviously, they need. You need a little bit of range to get to hawaii and such right and around the pacific um, we have agreements with other countries where we do their flight inspection work for them on a reimbursable basis um, so we have to get back and forth to them the the airplanes as i understand it are owned as part of a shared agreement with the us air force because they have flight inspection requirements in obviously in far off uh, areas of other countries and so they have their own crews and they will fly the airplanes too. So uh, a lot of different uses um, in a lot of different parts of the
1: world. Well, that's, that's actually fascinating. I didn't realize that. So you have these agreements with other countries, uh, but now the, the King Air, though, stays domestic, or does it sometimes go out of the country?
2: No, it's, it's primarily domestic just because of the, the range issue. There, we've been talking about opening up uh, the Caribbean to the, uh, the King Air, which may happen, but uh, uh, it's primarily the jets that do the overseas stuff.
1: You know the the King Air, as far as a tool, seems great. It flies a little slower, et cetera. Um, what you know, and what kind of facilities are you going to check with the King Air, as you would, you know, as opposed to the to the jet, or is it the same? It's the same. There, there's
2: really no difference. So uh, we have equipment on board the airplane to fly, you know, any kind of eight uh, or approach that you would you would ever see published, um, including it tac approaches, you know, general aviation pilots you know, don't fly tac approaches, but I've gotten the opportunity to do that in this job at military locations. Um, NDBs, yeah, well, they still have NDBs out there, and, well, if they're working, we need to uh, we need to check them out, so we still fly NDB approaches as well. Uh, any kind of, you know, departure work, uh, all the airways, like I said, looking for obstacles, uh, runway markings and lightings, uh, all that kind of stuff can be done by either airplane because they both have the equipment in the back to uh you know, all the extra receivers and sensors and stuff to be able to measure these facilities
1: i think it's cool that you said you did some ndb approaches yeah you know people i think assume that there's nothing in the u.s uh no ndbs left in the u.s but, i can't uh, say there's a whole lot and no. it's not like i've done a lot of them but uh, have done a, a couple because they but, you know, like i said they
2: you can still find them around occasionally
1: that's fascinating. I can't remember last time I did an N D B approach in the US but uh and it was probably in a Cherokee or something. That's that's pretty cool. So when you so these planes that you fly, you okay, it's the it's basically a King Air, I guess is uh two hundred, right? It's Wait. a three hundred. Three 300, 300, 300, okay. Yeah, they're
2: all from the late eighties, uh eighty seven ish time frame, uh when they were making the three hundred and we bought 18 maybe That uh, may not be exact number of, approximately of these airplanes and uh, outfitted them to our specifications
1: with extra equipment on board so when you go out and fly these missions of course we hear flight check and uh i think that's the term they use over the radio uh, i see them on an approach usually uh in the pattern or straight in that's about the only time i actually i get to see you so um where what is your basically what is your typical mission what do you what do you usually do like say in a a day or a week i guess is a good way to to figure out what a mission is yeah sure well i'll start with kind of what you
2: just mentioned about being you know on final in the pattern and and the one thing is flight check can sometimes seem like you know we're getting in the way a little bit and (laughs) unfortunately it does happen because you know sometimes we're somewhere during the day and there's a busy flight school operating you know and but i think it's important to realize that flight check doesn't really want to get in the way at all. Yeah, you know, when I'm flying, I, I don't want to be in the way of of the the student solo flight. You know, we want to do our job to get in and out just as quick as we can. And the quickest way to, to do that is is of course if everybody just gives a little bit of room and we can get in and get out and then you can carry on with your training. So uh, believe me, we we do not want to interfere with anything. We want to do as much as we can to not interfere and and Generally, we'll try to work it out with the pilots in the pattern and see what the best way is, how we can kind of accommodate everybody. Um, Often, our most common kind of periodic inspection we will do is just looking for new obstacles on an approach. So we need to fly an approach one time. we come in and do a low approach and get out and make sure there's no new obstacles that have come up since the last time we checked it, and then we're out of there. Uh, along the way, we also go ahead and check out the pappies and the runway lights and approach lights if there's anything there and make sure that's all working. But the main purpose is the obstacle check. So if we can get in there, g- get in and out quick, then we're out of your way.
1: So when you're doing that check, how do you, uh, how do you record all that? In other words, how do you know, you know what the last check was and what the obstacles may have been? And how do you know things have changed? Because you could be a different pilot doing the check. Yeah.
2: It's, it's all about paperwork, right? (laughs) No no plane takes off until the paperwork (laughs) exceeds the gross weight or whatever that that thing is. (laughs) Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we look at the previous reports. We look at the documentation on an individual approach that, that is available to the public, but generally most pilots aren't aware of it. Uh, you know, that states all the, the obstacles for each segment. And we know, so we know what we're looking for and we'll, be able to spot if there's something new that hey wait a minute <laughs> yeah that uh, that antenna looks uh, pretty close we better you know report that back and check it out so it's all based on previous reports and documentation like that uh, you did ask what a typical week's mission consists of and that's 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 the fun part because we we generally have about a four day itinerary we'll take off from my home base is here in Oklahoma City so we'll take off from here on say a Tuesday and we'll be back on Friday. Um, so that's three nights away, generally. And depending on what our main mission is for the week, really controls the flow of how things go. We, we may have where we're just hopping around to a bunch of airports, you know, within a several-state area, uh, just doing, like I previously mentioned, these uh, reviews for obstacles. Or uh, we may have a flight, like I did uh, a month or so ago, where we had to conduct periodic inspections on the ILS systems at uh, Houston Intercontinental and Hobby Airport. Well, those are big, busy airports and you know, it would be really hard to get the kind of work we need to do done during the day when all the flying's happening. So, well, we go there at you know, 11 at night or one in the morning or something like that. So we may have an itinerary that's all nighttime work just like that and we'll spend a few hours a night working on uh, the bigger airports, just to stay out of the way of all the airline traffic.
1: In each of these airports, they have, some have many, many approaches. Do you actually check each of those, or um, do you, I mean, do you come back periodically, uh, or is it all done at once?
2: Each of the approaches does get checked over time. I guess that'd probably be the best way to answer that. I mean, you know, to do, every approach at say Houston Intercontinental or DFW or you know JFK or something like that I mean there's a lot of approaches so it would take a long time and be a very uh, big uh, potential issue for a traffic control so we we do kind of spread them out we do whatever's come up on the schedule there are different uh, requirements for how often each thing needs to be checked Um, but we'll work out the schedule and some of the things we have to do during the day you can't look for obstacles at night obviously But you can detect whether the ILS signal itself is within the standards for it. You can do that day or night. That doesn't matter. So we'll try to schedule these things appropriately. We have a whole scheduling office that takes care of this kind of coordination to make that work. Uh, But a, a normal week, like I mentioned, would consist of... You know, departing out of here, maybe flying 30 minutes to an hour or so to get to some airport, do a couple of checks there for 10, 20 minutes, hop over to the next one. It's, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles away, 10 more minutes of checks and kind of bounce around like that and trying to get everything, everything knocked out in a reasonably efficient manner.
1: Does each uh, base, I guess is a good way to say it, uh, have like a radius or, or a specific area they cover?
2: Yeah, I mean, from Oklahoma City, we kind of have the central U.S., the kind of southern, more southern central uh, U.S. We have an office of Battle Creek, Michigan, that kind of does that part of the country up and into you know Minnesota and the, the Dakotas and over there. And so we we do have our kind of our areas, but we it's not a, a hard defined limit. You know, we kind of roam out into others if it makes sense for the schedule. You know, if we happen to be close, maybe we'll pick up a few more things. So. Uh, it does let me see a lot of different parts of the country, which is nice. I was out, um, uh, two weeks ago, uh, out supporting our office in Sacramento. They needed a a pilot to come out there for some various reasons. So I went out there and got to fly all around California for a week. It was great, (laughs) a lot different scenery than Oklahoma. So, (laughs) so it was, it was very nice, nice change.
1: When you're on these trips, do you, do you get to go out and like, I don't know, see museums and stuff?
2: Yeah yeah not not generally too much. I mean there's a little bit of opportunity for that maybe but uh, generally we're working you know a normal work day. You know 7:30 to 4 or something like that or and usually we we end up going a little bit long because things take longer than they should. So by the time you're done the the day it's closing time at any interesting museums and such. So uh so we don't get to do a whole lot of the touristy stuff.
1: So there's you know in a lot of like flight instructors have a limit on their days pilots at 135 and 121 do do you have a limit to how much you're allowed to fly or how long your day can be
2: yeah we all fall under part 135 uh, rules it's all it's all the same yeah okay. I mean, we yeah flight time limits and, and crew rest requirements
1: and such like that yeah so how much is that for those that don't know what 135 is about
2: Oh man! Now, you, now you're now it's like oral exam time here, Carl. Jeez, <laughs> no, okay, so man, no, I think no. a... <laughs> so, it's so it's it's a, you 14, hour yeah, it's a the... 14 hour duty. Yeah, it's a 14 hour duty okay. day, 10 hour rest. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, similar to to many of the other the airlines and 135. Okay, yeah. so that that gives us a little bit of color there, and uh, obviously you don't bump up against that too much. No. I'm assuming no.
2: Um, so. Sometimes the the uh, duty day, but uh, not the uh, actual flight time limits within that duty day and i will say you know a lot of the work we do is can be really tiring because it's low altitude it's a lot of maneuvering you know you get done the day and you can be pretty exhausted depending on what you're doing getting bumped around in the (laughs) in the summer heat too You know, so So
1: how would you compare that to like flight instruction? Like
2: pretty similar actually, you know, um, one of the interview questions I had when I got hired was something like, you know, or basically saying our job is like, I just told you. And you know, how are you prepared to handle that? And I'm like, I, I was a flight instructor for a couple thousand hours, (laughs) you know, it's all, it's all low getting bounced around. It's, it's, it is similar to that where you get done the end of the day and you're, you're worn out.
1: Sometimes do you get to enjoy the flying though um, I mean well, yeah, it,
2: it, it's it is fun um now not all of it is that it is fun, but I mean sometimes you know you gotta check out a hundred mile segment of an airway for obstacles where you fly the airway for a hundred miles and look out the window I mean yeah, that's you know King Air speeds that's you know twenty twenty five minutes or something, plus sometimes we have to reposition to other places so we might fly an hour and a half to get somewhere that's a time when we're both the the other pilot and i will be looking at each other saying, Well, so this is what uh, Carl does for the airlines. Huh? sits here and <laughs> what, what are we supposed to talk about? Sludge. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah.
1: How was your commute in? That right, right. What do you guys <laughs> talk about for all this time? I don't
2: know. I don't understand. Uh, yeah. But, I haven't figured that out but, either, but it's, it's amazing. <laughs> but as far as whether the, the flying is is fun or not, you know, you know, everybody's, I suppose, have a, has a different definition of fun, but, uh, there's definitely some inspection work that is more entertaining, I guess, than others. Um, one of our most common and longest inspections is just the periodic inspection of an ILS system. Uh, Cause we, we you know, as pilots, we fly the ILS and it tells you you're, you're on glide path and on course and everything looks good. There's a whole lot more that goes into that to, to making those signals work properly than I ever had any idea about. And I, you know, I've, you know my past I've been pretty involved in instrument procedures my whole life so but just the I mean think about it if the the course you know the localizer course was to there was a problem with the transmitter right how would you know well there's alarms on there's monitors on the system that will alarm if it goes out of tolerance well how far does it have to go out of tolerance before the before the monitor kicks over, right? Uh, well, there's a limit to that, you know. And one of the things we're doing is uh, measuring that limit to make sure it's within the standards. So the cr- technician on the ground will actually intentionally degrade the ILS signals, both the localizer and the glide slope, and and compare that to the allowable tolerances, and we're verifying those. And so it's a whole it's a whole check doing a a uh, periodic inspection of an ILS takes about an hour and a half um, or more. if uh, I mean that's, that's a everything went perfectly kind of thing. Uh, because we're measuring the width of the localizer signal, the the accuracy, the uh, signal strength. Then we're doing the same with the glide slope. I mean is it, what is the angle? Is it still a 3.00 or is it kinda, you know, drifted a little bit? Uh, is you know, if you're too low, are you getting a strong enough fly-up signal you know, that you know, it's, it's going to cause you know, your autopilot and such to, uh, to correct? If you're too high, are you getting a strong enough fly-down signal? So we have to fly straight and level through the course numerous times as the, as the ground techs uh, make adjustments. Uh, so you add all those up together and it adds up to hour and a half easy um, or more if they have to make adjustments to do all that work.
1: How about all those other segments, like the initial, your intermediate, your final, and then say even your missed? do you, do you check all those too?
2: Um, we check all of those, but on a little bit different basis um, because generally once those are checked you know, as part of the uh, new procedure development, you know, then really issue is new obstacles. Uh, the databases are pretty good. So when we look for new obstacles, we're primarily just looking for the final approach segment and the initial part of the MIST, okay, where, where everything's more critical. Um, so, we're not checking out the initials uh, to the same, uh, I guess you would say, level. Uh, but we are verifying that they are safe. And the the signal strength, as far as if, you're, if you are navigating by a VOR feeder to an ILS or something like that, that we are checking out that VOR as well on a regular recurring basis. So, you will be guaranteed that that signal is usable as well.
1: Interesting. You know, that's something, yeah, that's it's fascinating because... That, it takes a lot more time than you think. And uh, I didn't realize you did all those different checks. But yeah, there's gr- another no, but, thing that, uh, Let me just interrupt. You. Uh, granted, you know, a lot of that time is, well, it's an airplane,
2: right? So you've got to reposition it back to the other. If you're, I mean, if you're going to do multiple inbound runs on something, well, half your time is going outbound to set up for it, right? You know? Right, absolutely. Yeah, so you know, admittedly, that probably takes half of our time approximately, is just repositioning the airplane to do the you know, check again.
1: And I'm curious, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but if you can, if they've thought about using other devices to do these checks. Meaning.
2: Uh, Ah, so the drone question, yes.
1: Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah,
2: there there are studies going on to uh, see if and what and how much of our job could be done via some kind of uh, more automated means. Absolutely. I mean, of course it's being looked at. That would only make sense, right? Now, whether it, comes to anything is anybody's guess at this point.
1: Right. It'd have to be something large, I guess, with some equipment on board too. So, it, uh, yeah, that, it, it'd be interesting to see if that that comes to fruition. How about, uh, and again, I'm not sure if, if you can talk about this one too, how about what's going on lately with 5G? Uh, are you involved in any of that type of checking?
2: I haven't been involved in, the, in any of the 5G work, uh, other than if we happen to notice something as we're doing another inspection, which I have not on, on my on my work uh but yeah so I can't speak a whole lot about that I haven't haven't seen it and I'm definitely not involved in it
1: Absolutely interesting the the other thing I was going to mention before is uh, one thing that fascinates me is you, you know you see a lot of different items going up uh towers uh windmills even small buildings there's a whole nother group you know correct me if I'm wrong that that does that in other words you have to Actually, put in for uh, and file with the FAA a a report, and then they go in and and look at it and then inspect it. Is that something you get involved with? So, say I want to put a windmill near the airport. Is that something you guys would get involved with uh,
2: Um, at some point? Mostly no, but a little yes. Um, So, yeah, the, the notice of proposed construction, I think something like that is the term. And and there is an office within the FAA that looks at. Your, your construction proposal determines if it's going to be a problem for aviation. And if it is, then they pose certain limits on the height and such. Um, I did a little bit of work with that in my last job. But the only time it's really going to come to flight inspection is if it causes an impact to an actual procedure, not just a, uh, you know, it could cause an impact, but, you know, or or it um, uh, might cause one down in the future to a future procedure, I guess is what I'm saying. But if it, it ends up raising the uh, decision altitude on an approach or an MDA, then uh, it would be part of our next inspection. Yeah. Or actually a special inspection to go check it out.
1: So during that inspection, say I've always wondered this, you have a a temporary construction crew doing work with cranes. Um, Do you have to come back and, and recheck those again? I mean, how is that? I'm just trying to figure that out. You know, it's like how, how would you even do a a flight check and, and during that, period and do you have to come back again after those cranes are gone um yeah i
2: really don't know the answer to that question i'm not i'm, I'm not exactly sure uh, but you would yeah because you're saying because the cranes will be higher than the building is, is what you're saying right yeah. right yeah, yeah I, I, I i'm not really sure how to that answer that
1: question now. yeah that. well that's fine i just <laughs> i was just wondering because that's something you're looking out for right if you see something new and, it, and it's not right actually right. And you don't know about it, right? Well, so you'd have to you know, know
2: about uh, this. Last week on the trip, I was, one of the obstacles we were looking for was labeled crane on the on, the, on our documentation, right. right? And we didn't actually see a crane. <laughs> we didn't see any problems with the procedure, but I just didn't, my guess was it was a, like you just mentioned, a construction crane on top of a downtown building that was nearby where we were, but the crane wasn't currently up. But it seemed like probably the height of that crane was accounted for in the procedure anyway. Yeah, I don't know, for for loading air conditioning on top of the building or something. I have no idea.
1: Yeah, this is kind of a funny question. I I don't know if you can answer this, but every so often when I fly into a specific airport, they... uh, says caution cranes in harbor and they have to, you know, increase the the minimums and stuff like that. I know the airport you're talking Uh, about. Do do, do you have to time those so that you test it while the, while the boat's going? I I know I'm kind of joking, but it's a whole big
2: (laughs) scheduling problem. you got to schedule the boat to come by right at the same time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that, and and again, that's something that, you know, you have to take into consideration anything that's, that's movable. Um, But as far as like these, the different things that you do, it's all the, during these maneuvers that you're doing is it at specific speeds you know do you test out all the different categories i mean how does that work
2: no we have a kind of a standard speed we fly at although it can be adjusted based on conditions i mean in the king air it's 170 knots for a lot of stuff 140 knots for approaches but that's that's just a nominal kind of hey this speed seems to work generally well but you know we fly faster we fly slower depending on conditions um we don't we don't fly, you know, category A, B, C, D, E air speeds. No, we we can do everything we want to do at our King air speeds or at our, our Challenger speeds. Um, a lot of that is is visual. You know, if you're talking about a circling area, well, it doesn't matter how fast we circle if we find the obstacles that are the issue, right? So, All right. Yeah, so, and, and then you might. The, another logical question would be sometimes you see speed restrictions on a procedure, right? On an approach or, or a departure, right? Maintain less than 210 knots or something until whatever. Well, when the King air, we're almost always less than that speed anyways. So that's, that's not a problem, but, right. but um, no, we're, we're just evaluating those as best we can in the airplane we have.
1: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And uh, so you're going from design to the real world, making sure everything's working uh, on these, most of these facilities that you're checking now, I'm, and I know you haven't been there uh, for a real long time, but I'm curious how much may, maybe that you've seen is switching from some ground-based to celestial navigation, or you know, to to GPS. Um, and and another follow-on to that question would be, you know, how relevant are ground-based navigation aids still?
2: Well, we all saw the uh, big reduction in the number of VOR approaches and the removal of VORs from service as part of the VOR Mon program that you know is still going on. But the the VOR procedures themselves, that whole cancellation project, started back in maybe sixteen or seventeen, somewhere in that time frame. Um, and but we still have them around and, and they're still important, of course, as a backup for GPS. If the you know. The GPS constellation goes down or, you know, we're under attack by a foreign player that, uh, you know, jams it or those, you know, those kind of things. Uh, but I've seen, you know, GPS interference on a general aviation flight of my own, you know, where I lost GPS signal for 50 miles. Now, fortunately, I wasn't landing anywhere in that 50 miles. You know, I was it was just as I was flying through. But uh, if I had been landing there and there had been weather, uh, well... I guess it would have been an ILS review or a VOR approach, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely,
2: and so, yeah. So I mean, they're so they're still around; it's still important. We we check them out. If it's going to be a published and usable procedure,
1: it needs to be you know, checked and verified. And, and from just from what I've seen, there's just been a growth in all these different procedures, especially GPS uh, and RNP approaches. If we're starting to call them. You know, that is, uh, that's got to add a lot of work to you, which is good because it's job security. I'm thinking, <laughs> well, well, I like to think of that, of course, <laughs> but yeah, um,
2: there's, there's always going to be a requirement for, uh, some type of verification of, of navigational systems. I mean, we, we, we can't do without it. I mean, so, you know, sometimes maybe the, uh, the periodicness can, you know, can be reevaluated, you know, how often, but, uh. You as a as a pilot with your know, your Airbus full of people, yeah, you know, need need to be uh, convinced that everything's going to work fine.
1: Absolutely. So there's always going to be a requirement for it. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times though, I, uh, you know, I probably have felt this myself to be honest. Is like I hear flight check, uh, you know, it's like, gosh, you know, they're kind of like, oh boy, here we go again. We're gonna get delayed because of flight check. I mean, actually, it's a good thing, but sometimes that's just a feeling we have. Um, I think it is an inconvenience, but it's a, it's a, it's a necessary inconvenience. Uh, uh, that's for sure. I don't know if, you know, you know, when you, when you're out there flying, you, you're not trying to get in the way. In other words, you're just doing your job.
2: <laughs> yeah, really. We're, we're interested in getting whatever work we have done at that airport done and getting on to the next one and the next one so that, you know, we can go home yep, <laughs> or, or or get to the hotel anyway. yeah. Um, and and unfortunately sometimes you know there is a little bit of uh of delay or inconvenience and some sometimes sometimes it works better if you know the the flight school airplane just kind of extends her down one a little bit or and sometimes it works better if we do a 360 out there you know it it just all really depends on the situation uh however we can best uh work with that
1: interesting you know well and and talking about that you're you're flying around this King Air. Prior to this, I think it was like a seminal or something like that. You spent most of your time, and um, I'm assuming there was a, a transition period for you. I was just kind of curious what that was like, and maybe even maybe give us some, some color as to the the King Air. And, and uh, first of all, I'm assuming you like flying it.
2: It's it's a lot of fun. It is. Um, you know I have flown most. Uh, listeners who have been here for a long time know that most of my background is light general aviation piston engine singles and twins and and i've done some uh some flying in the larger piston twins you know the 421s and 340s and such um uh before coming to this job i did not have a whole lot of turbine time i had a little bit of jet time and a you know a little bit of turboprop time but not a lot so that the king air was pretty new to me as far as you just general operation goes and of course, we went through the simulator, which I think we talked about in the Aviation Careers episode, and then you know, got, went through some differences training and got thrown out on the on the line to, to go fly. And it is, it's fun, it's busy at some points. Uh, the King, I, I've talked to some uh, some pilot friends of mine who, there was one who, I think he's flying uh, Gulf Streams or something like that, and. And he rode along as the right seater in a King Air. And he's like, oh my goodness, there's, there's so much stuff to do. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, it's way more complicated than my Gulfstream. And I was like, really? I, I had no idea. Well, there are a lot of switches and levers and knobs and buttons and dials and all that kind of stuff in a King Air. So there's a lot to do, um, especially the way we fly. Because, you know, we're, we might fly, you know, between fuel stops, we might fly 10, 15, 20 approaches. Wow. You know generally in visual conditions, you know, but, you know, just bounce around the different airports, you know, 10 minutes apart or something. There's a whole lot of climb out, set up, you know, descend, you know, this kind of thing, gear up and down, you know, switches being thrown, that kind of thing. So it does get pretty busy, but that, so it takes a little bit of time to, um, to kind of get used to it and, and feel comfortable. I've, I'm at like, maybe 210 hours or so in the King air. And it's finally starting to kind (laughs) of, you know, where flying the airplane is not that big of a thought. You know, we have to focus on the inspection work we're doing, not as much on the flying work. So, so that's, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask, when does it come second nature? You know, it's uh, I always tell people, give yourself six months, you know, to really kind of well, support. it's been
2: about six months for me, so uh, yeah, I'm, I guess I should be there. there right go. So, you're, you're set. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we'll see. I, uh, I'll be happy to, to let you know when
1: when that happens. Yeah, everybody says just like but, flying a one seventy two, except you know you're so busy. I guess you're practicing to be a Ginsu chef, you know, because it sounds like you're always throwing switches and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it sometimes,
2: but well, I, I'll tell you what. So along with the flying, and and this, I want to tie this back into the question you asked about uh, VFR stuff we do, and and some of the most enjoyable things that we do are uh, pappy light commissionings. Hmm. So if an airport installs a new set of pappies, or could be a new set of Aziz but uh, you know, most people are, when the airports are putting in, new lighting systems are putting in pappies. Uh, we have to go in and commission it. And as a pilot, you just think, well, they're just some lights and they shine up in the air and they show they're red or white and with red over red, you're dead, that kind of thing, right? But there's a, again. I was surprised. There's a whole lot more into this. I mean, most people don't realize that Pappy lights have a a service volume. You know, left. You know, side to side of course. You know, ten degrees. It's supposed to be usable ten degrees either side of course. Well, how do you know if it's usable ten degrees either side of course? Well, flight check goes and flies. You know, across final, and we look at it and actually measure it. You know, okay, it, it was eleven on one side and twelve on the other side, and. Maybe there's a building across the street that blocks your view of the pappies. You know, past a certain, you know, left or right of the runway. Well, we got a remark on that. That's something you might see in the airport facility directory somewhere, right? Uh, Pappy's unusable beyond five degrees right of course or something like that. Um, what else? You got the angle, right? Well, the the guy who installs this Pappy system, you know, it's got four lights. Well, they're each individually adjustable. Well. They've got their specifications and they put it in there, but well, was the concrete pad it's mounted on tilted a little bit or who knows, right? So we fly a couple passes to determine the angle of each individual light and get a, um, you know an average for the, the whole box. Um, we have to verify that if you get any white lights at all, you're not gonna hit anything. So we have to fly low enough that we get all red ones so and make sure we don't hit anything so what i'm getting at is in all this pappy stuff which of course is applies equally to vfr and ifr pilots right and you're flying in somewhere at night you see the pappies you got two whites and two reds you should feel pretty confident that you're not going to hit anything on the way down to the runway right so all this flying we do is all low level i mean it's 500 feet ish above the ground and and lower uh, inspecting obstacles that no one would reasonably think are going to be a problem, but again, if you're at night and you can't see, and you maybe get a little bit low, you want to make sure you don't hit anything. So it's a lot of low-level maneuvering. It's in a king air. It's a
1: whole lot of fun, car Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it. It's it seems that you know I'm starting to get a feel for why you do this VFR, uh, and uh, and why it's yeah. primarily a, a day VFR thing because kind of gets so that's actually a
2: great point um you know we fly hundreds of approaches but they're almost all vfr because we have to be able to see stuff um the majority of our work is done vfr there's a few things we can do ifr um some of the higher altitude stuff especially you know with a vor or something making sure it's usable but yeah in general if it's ifr or you know just poor weather we either don't take off or we take off and go somewhere else and to kind of adjust our schedule because our we do have to have generally pretty good visibility and
1: and ceilings to do our work. Sounds like there might be a few hazards involved in this job. Uh, so how do you guys keep yourself safe, especially flying low level and and you know doing all these maneuvers near the ground? Yeah, you're right. Uh, there are definitely some hazards involved. Uh, one
2: thing, we have multiple radios in the airplane. So we're always, uh, we're on UNICOM if it's an uncontrolled field or CTF I should say and we're also generally monitoring uh well we're also getting radar service from from the uh from approach control both listen to both at the same time uh we have a two pilot crew uh both of us are looking out as best we can uh, we have an, a, a uh, mission specialist in the back who's operating the um you know the radio receiver equipment but you know there are some things that they don't need to use that equipment for so they'll be looking out, you know, obviously they're in the back, so they have one window on the side, but they'll be looking out, helping look for traffic and such, looking for obstacles, um frequent position reports on the radio. Uh we have obviously we have traffic, we have TCAS on board the the airplane, you know, we have ADSB as well, so so we have all that kind of stuff. Um but it it can be a little bit, you know, more hazardous i suppose um we we conduct a risk assessment before we do uh each each day's flying and in that matrix comes up you know the complexity of the airspace you know whether we're doing low level stuff uh if it's if it's mountainous or terrain's an issue you know the weather and all that kind of stuff so uh we're trying to account for that type of thing as much as we can because because you're right there's there's definitely a little bit more risk in this kind of flying
1: yeah, I was just thinking as you're saying that, especially at non-towered airports, you know, and uh, you know, flying around with a lot of 3FR during the day, um, some folks don't have radios, uh, so that's part of that risk assessment.
2: It's true. Yeah, our eyes are, are constantly out there on a swivel. Well, you, absolutely, I, we're not, we're not doing any FMS reprogramming during no, this little level not. work. No, absolutely not.
1: Concentrate on what you're yeah. doing. Look outside. You know that. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I'm happy you guys are doing this. It makes me feel a little bit better now that. I've talked to you, you know, so I feel better about some of the approaches I do, especially when I get down to minimums, I was like, okay, I'm glad Russ is out there checking these, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we have a, uh, not a ton of time left, but anything else you wanted to talk about flight check? I w- I wanted to also get your opinion on something else. Well, it's just a couple things.
2: I mean, you mentioned the, um, uh, the 5G interference, which I haven't really gotten involved in, but I have gotten involved in some radio frequency interference stuff. Uh, there was this one where we had received reports of uh, one of the uh, uh, centers' high frequencies was getting interfered with, just blocked by some radio station that you know was just I don't know had a bad transmitter or something, and. We picked up a uh, spectrum analyst guy with his own special equipment, hooked into ours, and went and tracked it down. You know, it was it was like homing in on an NDB kind of. You know, we were able to find it. We were able to fly right over the antenna. The needle swung. The guy identified which one it was causing the interference, and he was able to call and have, I assume, have the uh, radio station engineer fix it. So, I mean, the the center was you know unable to use that frequency the whole time it was. You know, being interfered with. So, you know, it was, that was kind of fun and, uh, and something that's a little outside of the norm for us, but, uh, it was, it was good and it was necessary too. Um, we, the, I don't think I mentioned radar. Uh, we have to make sure that the air traffic control radar is working appropriately and providing, you know, warnings and such. Um, one of the, one of the fun things we do again is, uh, checking their low altitude alerting capability. If you've ever heard that, um, so them tell somebody over the radio, low altitude alert, check altitude immediately, minimum vectoring altitude area is 3000 or whatever. Well, the way we check that is, we tell them we're gonna do it, and we essentially just dive at the ground at you know, a little more than normal rate, and air traffic control gives us the warning, and if it works, it works, right? Wow. So if it doesn't work, well then <laughs> we gotta do, gotta do a little bit more work and see what the problem is. Okay, wow. but that's why that's why we're out there to make sure that the uh, that when it becomes necessary there it works properly. But yeah, just, just a lot there? of fun fun stuff we get involved. In. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, with the you know when I'm flying around, how would I recognize a flight check? I mean, is it, I'm assuming they're painted differently? Uh,
2: yes. Well, number one, the the call sign, you know, flight check, you know, flight check seven four or something like that, right? Uh, that'll identify it. Um, the King Airs are uh, they're blue and white, but they have big orange flight check uh, you know on the wings. So if you see it from the bottom or the top, you'll see the words flight check and orange and black. <laughs> cool. the, the challengers are not so brightly colored, unfortunately they they're n- they're not anywhere near as distinctive.
1: So when are we going to see one at like the next air show or son of fun? Can you, can you arrange <laughs> that to bring one in for us?
2: Oh, Oh sure. I'll, I'll talk with my boss about that. We'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do.
1: Okay. <laughs> that would be fun though. Wouldn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to hold you to it. Yeah. I would, I would actually I make ask no, you to do that. That I, I made kind of no neat. promises. No promises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome to see you guys there. You know, um, Russ, this has been pretty cool. I know we're going to get a ton of questions about this. Uh, and hopefully we didn't miss anything. And, uh, But, you know, as you've been talking about the flight check, um, kind of ties into something we did on our, our last episode and that, uh, you actually weren't here for that, but it was, uh, you know, what's your most challenging approach and you get to see a whole bunch of them out there. Uh, so kind of curious what you felt since, since we're here talking about what, what was your most, or what do you think is the most challenging approach?
2: Well, you know, I, I unfortunately did miss that episode because I was out on a flight check trip. So, so I guess that was a. I, I hope that was a valid reason, Carl. I, I hope that was approved. That, no, uh, but, absolutely.
1: <laughs> We're going to dock your pay, which is
2: nothing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All all the all my pay from this episode. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I I can't say I've had a chance within flight check to fly. A bunch of challenging approaches. I've flown some fascinating approaches, it would have been really neat. But uh, but in my previous work, I got to see and work on a lot of challenging approaches. And, and I mean, of course, you can't talk about challenging approaches without talking about Aspen, Colorado, and their low DME Echo. I Absolutely. mean, that's that's a pretty pretty common one, in all these you know swirls, mm-hmm. scariest approaches kind of thing, right? Because well, it starts up way up there, and you know we need oxygen basically, and it's a really steep descent to the runway. But if you have to go missed, right ahead of you is like a fourteen thousand foot mountain, right? <laughs> so, wow, so you yes. got to climb out and then then you hope that you can figure out this you got to go fly outbound on the back course of a localizer that's up on a mountaintop and you have to remember that the outbound on the back course is correct sensing, which actually there's a note on the chart because that's confusing enough to think about here on the ground, right? Says so no on no chart so that you fly out that way. But uh, so that's obviously one. But another one of mine and this is another ILS uh, is is from back in the days when we didn't have Nav, right? And we had to, you know, part of your pre flight planning on an approach would be, which frequency am I gonna have in which radio and which, nav, you know, am yeah. I gonna use <laughs> number one or number two for the crossing radio and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, you remember all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and Provo, Utah, this ILS to Runway 13. I mean, there are tons of NAV aids on this procedure. I mean, if you did were to do the full procedure, right, you'd start at the Fairfield Vortec, uh, you'd first be using the Fairfield VOR radial, then on ARC for the Provo VOR, then on the Provo ILS, but you can't forget that the DME source is not the VOR, it's the ILS, you gotta make sure you switch that over. Uh, then if you go missed, you're back to using the, v, the Provo VOR to fly a radial to intercept a VOR to the Fairfield VOR for the hold. I mean, you got with two VORs, an ILS, and a DME source, and you gotta keep them all straight in your head. I man, that'd, that'd be a check ride type, uh, type uh, flight there. Yeah, I hope you have uh, somebody
1: else with but, you in the plane. Oh man, no doubt. Right? Here, you <laughs> switch the frequencies. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly
2: right. And there was another one I used to really like. Uh, it, it's been changed a little bit. It was an RNAV procedure. You know, I mean, we can find find complicated VOR procedures out there. Uh, you know, that would be tricky because of you know losing altitude and procedure turn and not really paying attention because they look simple. But um, there was this. RNAV procedure into McCall, Idaho, the RNAV runway one six. Now it's changed now, um, but prior to about 2017, it had inside the final approach fix. It had five step down fixes. I mean, it was not a vertically guided procedure. I mean, it was five step down fixes within this. I don't know a ten mile final or so. I mean, talk about just a busy time and trying to keep up on it. That would be, that would be challenging. Um, Fortunately, or unfortunately for this uh, discussion, I guess they, <laughs> they they revised it. Now, now it only has two step downs of final, which is you know still still a little more than average, but definitely not. Five. Yeah. So uh, absolutely. Yeah, but that that's definitely one of my one of my favorites.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty busy one. I mean, that's like step up, step down, step down. You know, right. drive and yeah, drive. Yeah, yeah, that's a good check ride right there. That'd be awesome. It would be. So, uh, do that one and that Provo one in the same check ride, I and mean, <laughs> if you can do those two, I think you should pass. And by the way, if you have uh, one of your challenging approaches, you're listening right now, you know, write us, stockmycafcast at gmail.com. And uh, I know a couple of people have asked that. Can I include it? And yeah, you can actually record an MP3 file if you want to actually describe it. Uh, because sometimes it's it's a little tougher to describe, uh, you know, in, you know, trying to type it out. I'd uh, love to hear your, your most challenging approach. And also, I'd love to hear some questions uh, for Russ or maybe a, a flight check question. You know, what... What has your experience been seeing flight check out there? And also maybe some of the things that have come up, uh, you might ask a question about flight check and, and maybe it's gotten your curiosity up, which I hope. But most importantly, just remember, we, you know these are the people that are keeping you safe and and verifying all the approaches one of the reasons that we have uh, one of the safest air transport systems out there and, and uh, you know i think uh, it hats off to the folks that do this all day because it is a challenge uh, it's a lot of work and it can be uh, <clears throat> somewhat hazardous you know so uh, we do appreciate it russ uh, and, uh, and thanks for doing that that's for sure well thank you
2: yeah it's been it's been very uh like I said, eye-opening. I mean, even with all the, the work I had done in procedures before, the level of detail and such was still amazing to me that everything goes into these, into the, the work that we do.
1: Absolutely. our well, this has been awesome. Our Picks of the Week. We have all the past Picks of the Week out there on Uh There's some really cool stuff out there, uh, some things we've had from past episodes. Uh, it's a huge list and uh, we love bringing these to you uh... but uh... russ uh... i'm gonna ask you what your pick of the week is and let, hang on oh by the way i haven't i have a new crystal ball i forgot to mention this and I don't know if it's I'll true, take he a does picture. actually. And I actually do, and I showed it to Russ. Uh, this isn't video, it's audio, but at some point you'll be able to see a picture of this. And, and in this crystal ball, I'm going to take a look and see what the future predicts for aviation. It only works in aviation for me. And, and for the pick of the week, I am predicting that Russ is going to give us a book. So, Russ, what is your pick of the week? Let's see if this, is, this works. Mm, your crystal ball is close, but a little fuzzy Oh, no. because
2: it's not a book. It's six books.
1: Oh, it's a series. Well, it was close. So, <laughs>
0: it was uh, close. Should I so should I return little, my crystal ball? Yeah, tuning.
2: <laughs> no, I think you just need to tune it or maybe you <laughs> know wipe it down a little bit or something. I guess, but uh,
0: no, it's a so
2: it's the series of books. They're, they're titled "Quick Aviation Reads," although I, I don't that doesn't really describe it at all. Um, it's a series of six books, or maybe more to come. I don't know. From an author named Sylvia Wrigley, who I believe is from the UK. Uh, but these are, they're like accident review type books. So if you enjoy reading about aircraft accidents and such, um, these are, they take, she takes, you know, the uh, NTSB report and some other sources and stuff and kind of com- you know, distills it down, I guess. These books are about, you know, in the 50-page in the range, I guess, generally, somewhere in that general range. Uh, but they go through some, some of these accents that I had never heard of, uh, her Research Researches uh, you know, often around Europe and these kind of areas, and well, as a U.S. based pilot, often I you know we don't hear as much about about some of these accidents in you know Cork, Ireland, or uh, uh, Boscombe Boscombe Down, I think was another one, and and there was a 737 at Tatarstan, you know these places that you know, I've never heard of in some cases. So uh, but like, but they're they're good reads. They're 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 quick. Like I said, fifty pages ish. Uh, as far as I know, and I'm looking at the, the, the Amazon website right now, uh, they're only available for a Kindle or read on your phone or tablet, if you like, uh, and they're 99 cents a piece. So not much. If you're a member of Kindle unlimited, they're available there as a, as a free download. So, uh, very, very inexpensive, uh, and, and a good read. Absolutely. I think I've read, I can't say I've read all six, but
1: I think I've read three or four. Wow, this is really, really cool. Uh, Yeah, that's awesome. I love all these summaries, and there's actually one that I wanted to uh, get right now. As a matter of fact, while you were talking, I went ahead and bought it. And so uh, the amazing (laughs) the that and there's some really interesting uh reviews so hopefully this will be a good one for me to read and they are very short so i appreciate that quick aviation reads uh sylvia wrigley is the author there just look in the show notes there's a a link to that uh so i appreciate that russ so awesome so i I guess i have to fine tune my my crystal ball it wasn't just one book it was multiple books just a little bit just a little bit it's got to (laughs) be
2: calibrated you might need a a crystal ball check
1: mission flight something (laughs) So my pick of the week is uh, something that uh, I'm pointing out a Facebook group, but it's actually a group called the Old Farts Flying Club. Uh, which I'm actually a quote-unquote a part of which <laughs> do, you, it, do you fit, and in I that? fit okay. into that all category right. and it's kind of funny how they came up with this there's people from all different backgrounds are there but I actually went to one of their fly-ins because I'm between airplanes right now and I can make this one it was here in Lakeland Florida and I have a link to their Facebook page which is really cool if you get a chance even if you're not going to go out and fly Uh, sign up for their email list and i'll tell you why it's it's what they do after the fly-in that is absolutely incredible and we're hoping to have the person that's the organizer on the show although he did tell me he doesn't want any more publicity because the events are so huge Uh, the last one i think 160 pilots signed up uh to go to this just a little fly-in get together for food uh and they fly everything world war ii airplanes i Uh, Sat with some really wonderful individuals uh, that uh, flew some Aerostars. Uh, They were kind of a group, uh, and it was really neat to listen to the air, you know, about the airplane. I had some friends bring a Stearman in. Uh, There's other people bring like Cirrus aircraft, but just a lot of fun. And that's really the camaraderie. And what I, I thought that it, it was like some beautiful airplanes. I just thought it was so cool that all these people of all these different backgrounds got together and and would do this. And it's just something is like what we should be doing in aviation is kind of reaching out to everybody and say, hey, let's get together and have, you know, an excuse to do some aviating and do some flying, and that's what they do in the Old Farts Flying Club. By the way, you don't have to be an Old Fart to join. Uh, Most of us are, but you know, not everybody has gray hair like I do, although I'd say 80% did where I was that day. Uh, So check it out on Facebook, Old Farts Flying Club, and that is my pick of the week. And Russ, again, I want to thank you for actually being our co-host and actually guest today on the show and uh, and tell us a little bit about flight check if they have questions i, I maybe we'll uh, have you answer some in the future yeah if you got any more that would be great i'd be happy to awesome thanks so much russ and if you're listening again stuck at gmail.com send us your questions send us your suggestions as far as what your most challenging approach is and also if you're somebody who's looking to get move forward in their uh you know, and they're flying life. Maybe you want to get another rating. Uh, maybe you want to get a type rating. Maybe you want to get your instrument, your seaplane, uh, glider. There's actually a way to do that, and that's by getting the, one of those scholarships guides. And the sponsor of this show today is actually Tailwind Waymakers, and it's a nonprofit, and they were founded to help uh, fund aviation dreams. So if you could use some funding for your aviation training, or if you'd like to win a new airplane, check out tailwindwaymakers.org. You just have to become a member, and you can be entered to win one of those airplanes. Use the coupon code TAILWINDWAYMAKERS and get a free scholarships guide. uh, Also, if you could, and you like this content, and you also wanna contribute to the future of aviation, go help us out on our Patreon account and become a patron. For just $1 a month, you can contribute within 10 months one scholarships guide to someone and that scholarships guide will actually help people move forward not just in their careers but also in their flying life it's not not only for careers and there's scholarships for all the non-traditional type of students like us Uh, so I really I really encourage you to go out there and check that out but most importantly do this for me Uh, when you start going out there looking at uh, aviation I know you're you're listening to this podcast right now maybe you're between uh, flying maybe it's been a couple years Uh, maybe it's been a couple days Uh, but make sure you get out there and and get involved in the aviation community just don't just you know kind of sit there and say hey this is great uh, that's cool but get involved in in whatever way you can and keep that aviation dream alive by visiting an air show going to the airport watching airplanes take off and land listen to live ATC but but try to try to get out there and, and keep that passion for aviation alive Well, folks, I can't wait till our next episode. We're going to have some interesting guests on. And uh, if you have any suggestions or any questions or comments, again, it's stuckmikeabcast at gmail.com.
0: We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast.